recording. Um, we are so blessed. We are so lucky to have Dr. Atia Martin in the building. I'm so excited because she is absolutely amazing in all that she does. Dr. S. Atia Martin was appointed by Mayor Marty J. Walsh as the Chief Resilience Officer for the City of Boston as part of the 100 Resilient Cities pioneered by the Rockefeller Foundation. Question mark. Uh, she is also the adjunct faculty at Northeastern University in the Masters of Homeland Security program. Do previously, Dr. Martin was the director of the Office of Public Health Preparedness at the Boston Public Health Commission, or the BPHC. In this role, she is responsible for coordinating public health, health care, and community health preparedness, emergency management, coordination among the public health and health care system via this this is this is so long and so we're like how, what does this mean this the beautiful dr tia martin how are you my love oh talk about beautiful you are beautiful um i am wonderful thank you so much for having me anytime um what does all of that mean all of that means um in terms of my role at the boston public health commission is that we coordinated with all the hospitals, community health centers, dialysis centers, all the healthcare partners, including mental health, to develop plans for when there were emergencies. And then when there were emergencies, um, we put we staffed up the medical intelligence center um, when we coordinated all of the response until the emergency was over and we were transitioning into uh, recovery. So it's been a, it was a very busy five years. I think we experienced uh, at least two hurricanes, Ooh. a blizzard, and then we had the five weeks of snowstorms, the marathon bombings, trolley crashes, bus crashes. Hold on. You worked with all of that? that that's under health? Uh, uh, through the Boston Public Health Commission, yes. Really? Yes, so coordinating the emerge the coordination across healthcare to make sure that our most vulnerable residents get access to the care that they need, as well as if there are a lot of folks who who need medical care after an incident, there's a lot of coordination that needs to happen across the hospitals. Um, and so we kind of facilitated that coordination. Um, so it's been it's been a busy it was a busy five years there. So I think I guess that's a part of strategy that we don't even think about mm. when you think about um emergencies and and you know the boston bombing you don't think about what goes on behind the scenes and and yeah. you you were the the wand i don't know if i was the wand but there was definitely uh some 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 orchestration happening um we had you know after the marathon bombings was probably the most intense response we ever had to do. We were activated for two full weeks, um, and we had uh, representatives from the hospitals, representatives from the um, Boston, or the uh, Red Cross. We had representatives from the United States Department of Health and Human Services. We had uh, the Salvation Army, I think I said them. Um, we had our um, some of our community health partners. We really, it really was, um, uh, as well as mental health partners. So we really had a, a full coordinated response. And um, a lot of the practical things we were doing was making sure that the hospitals had um, what they needed in terms of supplies. So um, there was a shortage of blood. So we had to coordinate with some partners around um, blood supply. 
Um, there was a shortage of amputation kits for obvious reasons. And so coordinating that across different hospitals. Um, so really was uh, intense on that front, on the healthcare side. Uh, but then also um, we had a lot on the human services side. Um, and that was, uh, that was definitely probably the most uh, heart-wrenching, right? So, so there's the traditional um, human services uh, pieces, some of the, res some of the um, financial resources that were available to survivors and their family. There was the coordination of um, uh, things like housing issues, things like um, it was tax day, and, you know, some of us procrastinated. So folks needed help with their taxes, but then there was some much um, more complicated issues, especially around uh, mental health and just tr exposure to trauma. Um, and someone asked me the other day, what was the most uh, significant experience that I had during that time? Um, and I remember we had uh, a young lady, one of the young, actually the young lady who was killed, who went to Boston University. Um, her family couldn't make it before the uh, memorial service, um, before they opened up the streets to, um, open up Boylston Street to the public. And so we had to do a special um, session just for her, um, for, for the um, parents and uh, their relatives. So myself and Dr. Ferrer from the Boston Public Health Commission went to uh, the hotel where the parents were staying with the aunt. Um, there was a police escort. We brought them to the site. And by this time, kind of people, it, it almost was like things went back to normal. It was kind of surreal. And so we had to block off the area so that there could be some space um, for, for the car to pull up. Um, and I didn't know this ahead of time, but they had found the police officer who was with the daughter before she passed away. So apparently she didn't die right away. And so there was some conversation that had happened. Mm. Um, and the police officer was telling his parents um, what the, that exchange was like. Um, and there was this, it was kind of very slow motion because it, there was translation happening. And so the, the, the police officer was telling her story. It was being translated. Um, and as a parent, it was just a very difficult time to be there as a parent, listen to the last person with their child, tell them what, um, what that conversation was. I can't even imagine. I don't think any of us can imagine what that would look like in any circumstance, not just the Boston bombing, but any That's circumstance. Right. That's right. Um, right now, you were recently appointed by the mayor of Boston, Mayor Marty J. Walsh, to be to head the Office of Resilience. That's right. What does that What does resilience what does that mean? mean? <laughs> oh, my God. It means so many different uh, things to so many different people. But in terms of the way, I'll, I'll give you kind of two levels. So there's what the uh, 100 Resilient Cities definition is, which is the ability of individuals, communities, organizations, systems to survive, adapt, and grow after emergencies. And they talk about two different kinds of emergencies. They talk about the uh, emergencies that are more related to chronic stresses in communities. Um, so things like racism, things like infrastructure investment or lack of infra infrastructure investment, high unemployment rates, the things that are constantly tearing at the fabric of our communities. Um, and examples of those include the Minneapolis bridge collapse, right? Um, what happened in Baltimore, Ferguson. Um, and then we also have the traditional emergencies, which are the ones that we usually think about. Um, we think about um, the, the snowstorms and hurricanes and bombings, those types of so things. So how do you, that sounds like a really broad range. It how is a broad range. How do you cover snowstorms, racism, and 
lack of infrastructure. Like, how do how do you do all of that? <laughs> you do all of that by prioritizing. Um, and so we've been very fortunate. Um, I, I've had the pleasure of, I think, having 164 meetings between September and February, uh, September of 2015 to February of 2016. You sound like you had more meetings than the mayor and governor combined. Probably not, but it was pretty. It was up there. It was up there, and um, and and it was very eye-opening um, around some of the shared issues across different um, constituents. So whether we're talking about the private sector or we're talking about um, community advocates, our own government cabinet um, and department heads, um, and our nonprofits, philanthropy. So it it really was very clear that race was something that folks wanted to focus on. Mm. Um, and that there was this very explicit language around we need to change the way we deal with race and racism in our country um, and in this city and, and change how we talk about it. Um, and I think that most people were just ready to have a real conversation. Um, a lot of people feel like they're tired of talking about race, but we don't really talk about it in a, in a, in a very in-depth way. It's very superficial and, and it doesn't do it justice, especially considering the long history um, of policies and practices. Um, especially considering the long um, process of socialization in terms of how we come to believe what we believe about ourselves and other people. Um, and this idea of how some of our most precious, uh, preciously held beliefs around if you work hard, you'll succeed. Um, and this idea of a meritocracy that that doesn't line up with kind of some of the things that we see in our day-to-day -day lives and that we experience. And so it creates this um, clash. Mm. Um, and so mm -hmm. so I think in order for us to really identify how are we going to address the inequities we have in not just in Boston, that not just the ones that we see in Boston, but ones that every city is seeing. Um, but for Boston, how do we really understand what these inequities are? How do we understand where we're seeing the biggest inequities? We just got a McKinsey report. <laughs> I heard. I, I heard you talking about that. You 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 have some explicit thoughts about that. I think I have explicit thoughts probably every day. That's okay. That, but that's a good thing. We need more people with some explicit thoughts about things. Um, and and I think it's a symbol of paying attention. I think it's um, important for us to be able to really engage on issues. We have to, in many cases, like we have to take a position mm -hmm. because then that allows for conversation. That allows for real kind of, you know, iron sharpening iron, as we like to say. Um, and and I think that for the city of Boston, what we know is that the inequities we see. Um, whether we're talking about education um, or whether we're talking about wealth or health or any of the, the big issues that we're dealing with, um, the, it disproportionately burdens communities of color. Um, and so there's some, some big questions we have to ask uh, of ourselves as individuals and as institutions um, that require us to talk about race. We can't talk about these issues without talking about race. So... So let's talk about big issues. Uh, for those who don't know, we are currently in the building with Dr. TMR, and she heads the Office of Resilience for Mayor Marty J. Walsh. And talking about race and some of the big issues, when we know, you know, right now the BRA has six more years of imminent domain, they have six mm -hmm. more years of zoning powers, they have six more years of, uh, so far in the past 18 months, I believe it's $1.6 billion that they've spent to, you know, put up all of these amazing buildings that mm -hmm. we cannot afford, that we cannot live in. Um, many of us don't make that uh, 
mm-hmm. and anybody making between uh, forty seven thousand and 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 sixty seven thousand are kind of lost. I, mm-hmm. I have a few friends that are like Taylor. I have to move outside of the city. I I can't live here. Mm-hmm. When we think about education and we think about you know the JP moms, we think about Quest and we think about you know the selected few that are fighting for the whole. And not just that, but the fact that we have many construction companies out here that are not hiring people Mm -hmm. that look like us. We have ordinances on the books that do not uh, are are not adhered to. Mm -hmm. You know, there's not a proper representation across all of these big ticket issues. And race is a problem Mm -hmm. when it comes to these as the Office of Resilience what steps are being taken to to ensure that there is some equity and mm-hmm. some, you know, some of those that are in power taking responsibility and acknowledging the wrongs that have been done. And even if it's, you know, by default or not on purpose and this is just the way the system is, and I speak to that as far as our police department is, that's just the way the system is. That's just the way it's always been. What steps are being taken to alter what we mm-hmm. see now? So I think the first step is to have folks understand that um, racism is a problem um, and not in the sense that we, the common discourse or the way we're talking about it in the media is. So when we talk about racism in the media, we say, we talk about racists, like individual who hold these very conscious beliefs and hate everybody who's not their race. Right. Um, and and so that is not what we have today. Right. What we have today is a long um, a long history of this socialization of the way we think about other people and ourselves, like I said earlier. And the way that plays out is in very subtle ways. Um, and so it plays out in the sense of when you think about a specific community and you think about um, what the realities of those communities are, if you didn't grow up there and that's not your community, then it's hard to understand really what that experience is without engaging people. Um, and I think when we when we look at the road that we have ahead um, and when we look at where we need to be, it's getting folks to understand at an individual level the bias that we all have and how it infects the or how it impacts the way that we make decisions, even when we're not conscious of it. Um, and then at an institutional level, that status quo is by definition perpetuation of inequities because mm-hmm. of the way that systems have been built in the past and the way they've been built in the past is very much um, rooted in exclusion. Um, and so we've kind of built a bunch of stuff on these systems with with this idea of being race blind, um, but in essence what that does is perpetuate the inequities. Um, and so really the work that we're trying to do is really make that connection between the fact that we all have bias mm. um, and it's not, in, in, in many cases, um, it's not just white people, it's also us community, people of color, Absolutely. right? Absolutely. And we've internalized a lot of these messages and behave in certain ways. And so sometimes it makes things complicated um, because people are like, well, that's a person of color. So of course, you know, that was, there wasn't anything behind that. But in many cases, you know, we all hold bias and we, there's this, there, but there's things we can do about that, right? We can um, learn and grow and open ourselves up um, to really self-evaluation to make sure that we're aware of the, the of this fact um, and interrupt it 
the other pieces as, as institutions that we can build in policies and practices that buffer from status quo and bias. Um, and so some of the um, interesting approaches that are coming out of the Government Alliance on Race and Equity, um, which is a national association or network of cities and regions across the country who are really looking at how do you operationalize equity, specifically racial mm. equity. Um, that sounds impossible. Like that doesn't even sound like, how do you operationalize equity? It sounds, it's fancy words, but in essence, what it is is asking ourselves additional questions, right? And so if we look at a policy decision, I, I, there's a, a several good examples. Um, I think one um, I'll give that's not government related, um, which is um, resumes, right? Mm. So there's been studies that show that when you, when people have a resume and they submit it in, that the people on the receiving end um, will call back the person with the white sounding name over a name that sounds uh, that sounds like it's a specific race or ethnicity 50% of the time, even when the resume has the exact same content. The only difference is the name. Tyrone and Shaniqua. Yes, ma'am. So if that's on the resume, subconsciously, and people don't even know they're doing it, but they're making that judgment call um, associated with what it means to, what they think it means to um, be a part of that, that culture. Um, and so we know if we have blind resumes, like nameless like resumes? Like nameless and addressless because you can look at neighborhoods and, and have association. Code, yeah. um, and so by having blind resumes, that creates the space for some something very basic, which is to kind of separate out um, the opportunity for that bias to step in. So it sounds, it's operationalized equity, sounds very big, but it's very practical things. Um, my favorite is um, there, was a, there was a period of time in the 70s where the symphonies and orchestras across the country were having a huge diversity issue, both in terms of gender, um, especially with gender um, and race. And so they were trying to figure out how they were going to do this. So, um, and this was when they first started learning about bias so they um, had these auditions where they called them blind auditions and so they would have a screen up and so the person would walk across the stage sit down play um, and that increased immediately by the the numbers by 20 percent but then they realized that they could hear the person walking across the stage and we can hear someone walking across the stage, you can tell if they have heels on, mm. right? So then they, they stepped it up and they said, okay, what we'll do is we'll walk into the room and the person will already be behind the curtain on stage. And it jumped up 45%. Wow. And so there are these very practical things that we can do. And that those are very simple um, and, and very like straightforward examples. We, but in government- what, For instance, really quickly. Yeah. So if we have like blind resumes, mm -hmm. so- Taylor is not, you know, the blackest sounding name, nor is it the whitest sounding name. Mm -hmm. So I can get away either or. But after you say, ooh, I like her resume, mm -hmm. let's bring her in, mm -hmm. and I clearly look the way I look, then there can be bias there. That's right. That's right. And so I think this is where the individual level comes in, right? So we've been talking about the institutional responsibility um, and the individual and the role of the institution in supporting the individual through this journey. Um, and so it's important that the folks making decisions um, understand that they have bias um, and that the, the standard ways of looking at um, the, the process um, or the, the process has to be standardized in a way that allows for um, the interviews to be focused on the, the, the core issues, um, which is 
are you qualified for this position based on what we need someone to do? Mm-hmm. Um, and in many cases, there's this specific kind of bias that um, they, they like to call like me bias, right? So when someone is like you, you identify with them more, you're more sympathetic. And so it creates um, the space for someone to be like, oh, they're just nervous, right? Let me let me help them through mm-hmm. this nervousness. Making a million and one excuses because if it was you in the same shoes, these would be your excuses. Right. Okay. Um, and then on the other side, um, you have someone else come in, coming in and, you know, identify with them as well, right? You don't have that connection um, because it's not, it's a female or it's someone of a different race. Um, and so because of the, the, the majority of the folks in hiring de- decision-making process uh, powers um, uh, within organizations across this country are white people, um, you get the perpetuation of that bias. Um, and then within institutions, what we see is um, because of the like me bias, right, um, on top of the fact that many of our the people we trust the most are people who look like us. So mm-hmm. if we said, who are the top 10 people in your life that you really trust outside of your family? And nine times out of 10, it's going to be people of the same race and that that top 10 circle. And what that means for decision making is when there's a big assignment and you really need it and you want to get it done well, you go to the people that you feel like you trust more who are in your inner circle. Mm. But that means that other people don't get access to those those responsibilities, which are usually the types of opportunities that um, allow us to get promotions right um, or or even those types of opportunities that may not be as high risk but are explicitly about promotion um, and so it's really something that we all as individuals and institutions have to take ownership of um, so just embrace the fact that we're, we're we are all infected it is what it is baby you have the hardest job in America right now no I don't because you know one of the things that um, that I feel very fortunate about is that this is a responsibility that we all have. And people are like, oh, it's here that you're going to do all this stuff. I'm like, no, we're going to do all this stuff. I'm just a facilitator. I'm a guide. But at the end of the day, um, we all have a lot of work to do. And we tend to depersonalize this. We talk about everybody else, what everybody else needs to do. Mm. Um, mm. And I'm staring at the man. Oh, in get the it. Mirror. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you're right. You're right. Um, so how are you facilitating us to be less biased mm-hmm. and have more opportunities? So there's a, a couple of levels. So the biggest piece is within city government. So we're going through a process now of really getting folks to understand um, where we're at in terms of the inequities that we see, what is happening with different departments, um, and uh, where we can focus our efforts. And this is a long-term process, so we're looking at um, what types of trainings need to happen within government. We're looking at um, what types of accountability um, there needs that needs to be put in place to make sure that folks are using a uh, racial equity lens and a resilience lens for how they're doing business um, and making sure people have the capacity to do that. And it's not just the mandate check the box, but that actually people understand why we're doing this um, and how important it is for our residents. Um, the other piece of it is in terms of externally really making sure that we're coming together to actually have meaningful conversations. Um, and for many people, there are different 
um, approaches to how we do that. It's, different things touch different people. So I don't feel like there's a one, there's like this model of how you do a racial equity or ra a racism workshop and like that always works. Um, I think that people need to have opportunities to be exposed to lots of different things and it's not a one-time thing. So the goal here is that we have, um, this summer we'll have two really big convenings um, with the mayor present um, and then we'll have lots of other ongoing opportunities to continue the dialogue and really support people in this process because once you get a once you get awakened to what is happening um, and how everything works and you're trying to figure out what you're going to do about it it's hard mm -hmm. um, and mm -hmm. so there has to be a community that people feel safe and comfortable being a part of and so there are some great organizations in the city of Boston who act as that community for people. Um, so Community Change Inc. is one of them. Um, YW Boston is doing some amazing work around creating that space for people. Um, and there are several other partners, but how do we collectively come together to hold people in our city who are ready to do this kind of work? Um, because it's hard and we need to support each other. Um, and then the other part is how do we share our lessons learned in government with other institutions mm. um, and really challenge them to join us on this journey of really introspection, taking responsibility for the things that we can do. Um, and, um, and that means that when there are issues that come up, um, that instead of saying how do we get residents to do things differently, before we get to that question, what can we as an institution, as an organization, be doing differently in order to address the situation? Why do we see this inequity? So basically being the change that you wish to see in the community. That's right. First taking taking that first step of saying, you know, this is how we are going to alter ourselves. That's right. And model for the citizens to hopefully walk in line with us. That's right. And and, I'll, and one of the things that's interesting about this is um, what usually happens because of racism is the community voice gets lost, right? And, um, and people get tired of engaging with the city, right? Because they're, they're because of the history. Um, and so this is really about the other part of this is about building that trust back up and taking ownership of um, being responsible for building that trust back up in our communities, um, you know, and recognizing, and I think you said something very important in kind of recognizing the past injustices and some present day injustices that are happening um, and what the city is committed to, committed to do to address them. And granted, the city, as city agencies, can't do everything, mm -hmm. but there's some important things that can be done. Um, and so it's a very exciting time of being introspective and really looking at how we're going to um, do this work because it, it's not an overnight kind of thing, but there are some short-term wins we can get as well as kind of building the infrastructure over time um, to make sure we get our, our folks trained up on how to do this, um, how to have meaningful conversations in communities while acknowledging the fact that there is this trust that needs to be built and that people are hurt mm -hmm. and people mm -hmm. are tired. Mm -hmm. um, and that and, and so without acknowledging that, you're just kind of alienating people. Right. Um, and that's why I think when you go to many um, community meetings, um, that especially the ones that government um, is leading, um, uh, oftentimes you see kind of people get up and people are, are almost giving their testimony like they're in church. Right. Exactly. They're yes. saying, listen, you know, this is what happened to me. This is how horrible it was. And by, you know, whatever grace graces you know it I either went well or it didn't go well and this is my frustration and people are so intense and passionate because they're hurting 
right? They're hurting. This is then um, it's like it's so cumulative. It builds on top of builds on top of and and every day you're seeing things that are um, are almost attacks on your culture and who you are, right? Um, getting these messages from TV and the news and media, um, other media sources and the, the music. Um, and we're, we're getting all education. these education, um, even what we're learning in school or what we're not learning in school mm -hmm, even, mm -hmm. right? Um, so we're getting all of these mixed messages, but in many cases, they're assaulting us and who we are. But the rest of the world doesn't see that because mm -hmm. it's not their experience. Um, so what do some of these summer workshops, you said there's going to be two summer workshops right. and then something in the fall. That's right. What does this look like? So we're working out the details now, but really the goal is that we, it, we recognize the urgency around addressing racism, um, that we recognize the direction um, for us as individuals and as the city um, in terms of the things that we need to be doing, um, getting folks on the same page around this language. What is racism? Let's just be clear about what it is um, in that it is the um, system, the hierarchy, um, the culture, the thinking that um, on the other end disproportionately benefits white people more than it does people of color. And the reason for that is kind of, again, this long history since our the beginning of our country of, of how we came to be and all the policies that have led here and the um, continued perpetuation, excuse me, of um, those messages. And so I want to be clear about some of the policies because I think these are not the things we learn in school. And mm -hmm. I wish more of us knew about these things because it provides the type of clarity um, that allows us to not just focus on individual behavior. We have to focus, we have to have, pay attention to individual behavior. But there's this huge piece around how did we get here, right? So for example, Social Security Administration, when that was first developed, Right. It it didn't allow for migrant workers and domestic workers to have access to those benefits for when they retired. And so that's not explicitly about race, but it was everything about race because mm -hmm. it was black who people worked fields, who worked in who those worked fields. in the servants. Exactly. Role. Exactly. And so that was predominantly black people and um, some um, Latinos. And so when we look at what happened with the New Deal after, during, as we were trying to deal with the Great Depression um, and the billions of dollars that were infused into households. And it was a great, it was a great process, right? That billions of dollars helped a lot of people get mm -hmm. their houses built, um, get new houses, um, do upgrades on their houses, um, all of these things. It was great and it had a huge impact and it created a huge middle class in America. The problem was it was only for white people. Um, communities of color didn't have access to those billions of dollars, and it further created a wealth gap. Um, and and then, unfortunately, Anari and Asaria have, you know, through government, they've learned this in, in school. Mm. But what you don't learn is that it was one-sided. It's like, oh, That's the right. New Deal. Let me tell you about the New Deal. It was and great. It was great. It was wonderful. It helped build America. But communities of color were exempt. That's right. That that's that right. part is left out. It's left out, um, and so and that's part of this um, piece around how uncomfortable we, uncomfortable we are with our history. Um, but because we're so uncomfortable with it, 
we can't get to the types of solutions that swim upstream and get at the institutional and systemic levels. Mm-hmm. Um, so when we don't understand these things, when we don't understand even how our neighborhoods were created, why people say, oh, Boston is one of the most segregated cities in the country. Well, almost every city is segregated in the, in the United States. That's, a com- that's comparatively speaking, we're one of the more segregated um, cities. But at the end of the day, every city in this country is segregated. And there's a reason. And that was because of the of redlining, right? Um, as well as many of the other things that happened during that time, um, um, kind of the exclusive covenants that happened and all those pieces, but where we were forced to live in certain areas. And even if you were a white person and you wanted to live in a certain neighborhood, you were financially disincentivized because then your house value wouldn't be worth as much as if you just went, went to a community that was predominantly white um, or that was all white. Um, so we we live in a we we have uh, this this entrenched history that many of us don't know about, mm-hmm. um, and so it it leaves us open to take actions that aren't necessarily going to have the type of change we need. Um, so the more we understand how we got here, the more we understand how exposed we've all been to certain ways of thinking, um, especially about other people. Um, the more we can take out more honest assessment about where we are and where we want to be, right, and how we're going to get there. Um, and so I feel very blessed to be in this role, uh, mainly because, you know, my husband and I are parents. We have five children. Um, and it's rare that you're in a position where there's this opportunity for being in a professional role that has huge implications for um, for your community. Um, and and I would love to see that my children don't have to do the pull yourself up by the bootstrap thing because that's not a way to live your life. Um, and so people say all you have to do is pull yourself up by the bootstraps and you know suffer and work three Twice jobs hard and work half as much two and three and four times mm-hmm. as hard and that's cool in terms of you know. Um, the fact that we had to go through it, but I don't want my children to have to do that. I want them to have uh, have be able to do do regular things and be able to do after school activities that are things they're interested in, and not just because you know you have to work because we need money and and all those things. Or you, um, it would be nice to that all children in the city of Boston had access to opportunities um, that supported their full human potential um, and and provided them the a type of environment that allowed them to thrive and grow. Um, and that's really what we all want for all of our children. And that's the my hope as we um, do this work that we're able to have be clear about that's the direction that we're trying to head in. Um, so that's, that's my story and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> so we've come to the top of the hour. Um, forgive us for our limited time. That's okay. It was my fault. We wish we had more hours, but we have what we have. Uh, You do what you got to do, like Nana said. Is it possible that we can continue this conversation at a later date? Absolutely. And we'll be able to find out what's coming out, what's rolling out as far as what the city's doing and how we can be involved and what steps that we need to take to take a look at that man in the mirror and, and make a better tomorrow for our children today that's right you get in get all that michael jackson and all of it all, all of it, it all of it <laughs> <laughs> dr atia martin how can we reach you if we have any questions if we uh want to learn more about you 
So I'd probably say the easiest way is through 311 because um, I'm hardly ever at my desk and they know how to find me, um, The which is the mayor's constituent services. Um, the other way is um, we will be rolling out our website in the next couple of weeks. So exciting. Um, it's going to be the Boston, uh, excuse me, bostonresiliencecollaborative.com, bostonresiliencecollaborative.com. And so that's really paying homage to the fact that the folks that we convene to help us develop our resilient strategy mm -hmm. um, for the city of Boston um, will continue to do this work moving forward um, and so that it's not just government, this office that um, I've put together um, doing the work, but that it's really a, a collective, a collaborative of people who have stepped up to do it. And 311 is the way that we can get in contact with you if we want to be a part of that collaborative That's conversation. Right. That's right. And 311 is a great number to put in your phone for anything that's non-emergency, uh, non-911. Non so if you see a traffic light out, if you see traffic trash in the road, if you see dead animals, if you really? see... If you see any of that stuff, call 311. And the great thing about it is um, it's very transparent. So when people put in a complaint, you can go to the website. Are city you of, serious? Yep, cityofboston.gov. And you can see the different complaints that have come in and when they were closed, when they were open, when they were closed. And so it's... it's so it's accountability. It's accountability. So I pot really holes, encourage potholes. Any, the, everything. 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 My That's neighbor the refuses to clean up the yard. 311. My landlord raise my rent. So if your landlord raise your rent, 311 can connect you to the folks who can help you with that. Okay. All right. So 311 is is the plug. It's the plug. It's the entryway into government. 311. All right. Is there an app for that? There is an app for that actually. Um it's the the Boss 311 app. Mm -hmm. Um and so um it's And I can make a complaint through the app. You can make a complaint through the app. This is Y'all need to uh, announce this. I haven't seen a billboard or something. Come on. They announced it, but I think we have a lot more work to do. This is part of the this is part of the work, making sure we get the word you out. You guys want to do a PSA on Big City? I would love to. Let's do it. I want to give a huge shout out to our sponsor, ZC Boston. Do not forget 801 Mass Ave free parking on every day, up to two hours for lunch. I had a bento box yesterday. It was absolutely amazing. And I already had some sushi, half price sushi on the weekends. Do not forget that they do deliver from uh, Dorchester and Roxbury all the way up Blue Hill Ave till you meet that Columbia Road. FaithNaturalsBeauty.com, activated charcoal teeth whitener, activated charcoal face wash. Don't forget the Pum Pum Wash. It's hot. Stay clean. Deodorant and the rose infused oil. Uh, huge shout out to Cruise Cares. The walk was absolutely amazing. I came out, woke up on time. I was there. Um, I cheated because I bike rode. <laughs> I wasn't. Um, one of the things really quickly, uh, since we do have a representative of the city in the building, one of the things that I do want to remind you is these hubways are for you. Mm. You mm. may not feel like these hubways are for you, but these hubways are for you. If you have mass health, if you have food stamps, if you have welfare, five dollars a year, you can get a mass hub, uh, uh, um, a mass hub. Uh -huh. A hubway key that allows you to utilize all of these hubways. If you want to make a request and say, we want a hubway in Mattapan, go to the website. Tell them you want a Mattapan hubway. Mm -hmm. All you got to do is ask. You have not because you ask not, baby. And what I need you to do is if you have a full-time job and you don't have Mass Health, it's $85 a year. And it will save you from traffic. It will save you from parking. It is absolutely amazing. If you have a 16-year-old that needs to get to school and the bus isn't always working out, 
out for you. As long as they are of the age of 16, they too can get a Hubway Pass. Again, if you have Mass Health or that baby has Mass Health, $5 for the whole year. You can use the bikes up to an hour. It is absolutely life-saving, literally. Mm -hmm. Anari and Asaria have taken the Hubways to school. They have taken the Hubways from school. I've taken them when I need to go downtown to go meet people. It's great. No parking, no fuss. No money, $5 a year if you have Mass Health, $85 a year if you do not. It's worth it. I love you. I appreciate you, Dr. Atia Martin. Thank you for your time. Thank um, you. And I can't wait to have you back because this is some great conversation. The Office of Resilience, I, I really am excited to see what rolls out, what conversations are had, and how we can be the... You know, as far as Boston is concerned, we pioneer everything. Like, we made gay legal. Mm -hmm. Like, you want to get married and you're gay? Come on, let's do it. Mm -hmm. We made that legal. We can set the example of how cities can be more resilient, how mm -hmm. cities can um, accept this race equity and learn how to, we need to learn how to talk to each other. We need mm -hmm. to let it all out. Mm -hmm. We are not our past and we need to recognize our past, deal with our past, talk about our past and move forward. That's Sankofa. Right. Sankofa. I love you, baby. Thank you. Love you, too. Big City 101.3 FM. Waking up with Taylor Andre, Monday through Friday, 5 a.m. to 7. Shout out to the Good Life Morning Show. I do apologize. We took up uh, more time than we usually do. But, you know, everything happened for a reason, and God is good, right? I love you. Mwah. Have a wonderful day today. Cha -cha.